The FT Weekend Podcast, supported by Ledger, the secure way to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto. From beginner to an expert trader, Ledger has everything you need to buy and grow your crypto securely, all in one place. Reclaim power over your money. Learn more at ledger.com. A while ago, author Dan Brooks was on Twitter, and he saw a tweet that made him absolutely livid. Would you like to read the tweet or would you like me to read the tweet? I would like you to read the tweet. (laughs) Okay, great. Okay. If you are hiking in a group and waiting for slower people to catch up, don't start walking again when they do catch up because then you got a rest and they didn't. I think about this tip a lot in many different contexts. In many different contexts. (laughs) That's the one. I think that's the one that got me. That's Dan talking to me in our New York studio. He wrote a piece for FT Weekend magazine inspired by this tweet. It's called What We Need Now That Social Media Has Weaponized Morality. I've put it in the show notes. Dan is aware that his reaction to the hiking advice may have been a little overblown. But to him, it's a symptom of a much bigger phenomenon. One that's overtaken the way we tweet and the way we talk about morality. First of all, right after I filed this piece, I was on a hike with a group of people (laughs) and one of them brought up this tweet and everyone agreed that it was great. Um, And I felt like such a heel. Um, (laughs) And I am probably a heel for getting mad at this because it's like a basically good sentiment. And it's a good tip for when you're hiking, if you're used to hiking a lot and you're with someone who maybe doesn't. But like Twitter is a particular occasion. You're talking to an audience of like probably just your mom and your roommate, but like maybe (laughs) large numbers of strangers. Mm -hmm. And there's what you communicate in the tweet. And then there's sort of what you communicate by the occasion of that tweet. Mm -hmm. And to take the occasion of Twitter as an opportunity to give other people moral instruction. (laughs) um, And that last part, like I think about this tip a lot in many different contexts makes it very clear that, like, it's not some process of discovery that they had while writing the tweet. It's more like, here's a way in which I am good and you, the reader, are probably not. Right. I think that's what bothers me is not the sentiment itself, but the the use of that particular venue for that sentiment in a way that is explicitly for the reader and not for the writer. What infuriates Dan isn't Twitter or social media per se. He's more concerned that generally, morality has become something we talk about and comment on publicly, not something we work out privately and then just live by. As he puts it, morality isn't between you and your conscience anymore. It's now a thing we do to each other. Dan actually thinks this shift has made us more passive, and ultimately, it's made us worse people. So today, I talked to him about what it might mean to be better. How can we be better collectively as a culture? And how can we be better individually on our own? Then we talk about Chinese language and internet culture with Professor Jing Su of Yale University. She tells us the story of how the standardization of the Chinese language some 60 years ago helped make China the digital superpower that it is today. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. I'm sure you heard this week that Elon Musk is inching toward buying Twitter. But this story, despite kicking off with an incendiary tweet, is actually not about Twitter. Yes, Dan does think that the internet can make people pile on in ways you wouldn't in real life. 
But Twitter is just one place we engage in conversation. And this phenomenon is happening in conversations everywhere. I don't want to say Twitter is good. Um, and it's certainly like an inflammatory force in a lot of areas. Um, but I think ultimately what Twitter is, is like a fire hose of strangers that you are that you're drinking from every morning. Mm-hmm. It's got certain incentives in place that are distorting people's behavior. And I think the absence of physical presence takes empathy out of the equation in a way that's like very altering and destructive. But for the most part, like it's just a broad sampling of what people are saying and thinking about and trying to grapple with. I am a I'm a libertine in my life um, mm-hmm. and a liberal in my social politics. Um, I think you should generally let people do whatever. But also there's been like a giant evacuation of moral authority from public life. So Dan is a rare breed. He's a non-religious, non-conservative who wants to talk about morality. Dan has this other great example of how we can hype ourselves up into this moral crisis while ignoring the real-life implications of our actions. The idea is you are in line at a bakery, um, and you're looking at the case which is full of baked goods, and you're trying to decide between a black-and-white cookie and an apricot bar. Mm -hmm. Um, And, like, this is not a moral decision, but you can make it a moral decision if you think about it enough. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example... If you get the apricot bar, then you are also complicit in the global system that produces apricots and brings them to the bakery, which is, uh, I'm sorry to say, an exploitative system, right? Right. Apricots exploit migrant labor, and there's the carbon load of shipping apricots from wherever they grow to wherever you eat them, and it's bad. Um, The black and white cookie, on the other hand, uh, expresses unity between black and white, which is very good. (laughs) So, and for non-Americans, this is a cookie that is just half of the frosting on it is black and the other half is white, straight yeah. down the middle. Don't worry, we'll export it to you soon, <laughs> whether you whether you want that or not. Uh, but then when for you sure. look at it, it's like sharply divided sections, one for black and one for white. And suddenly, yeah. like, the the analogy that we were so happy to find is is turning on us. But the uh, you can sort of spin out the moral ramifications of this choice as long as you want to. Mm-hmm. But while you are at the front of the line trying to decide, everyone waiting behind you is just having seconds of their lives sucked away by this process. Yeah. And so, okay, so we're all suffering from this myopia where all we can see is the cookie choice and we can't see the long, this line of people that we're bothering by standing here, some of which may have somewhere to go. And if they miss it, it you know, it would be much more problematic than an apricot bar. And I guess my question is, like, how we got here. What do you think? When did it start? How was it before? So I blame English instruction uh, since 1985. That's my... Much more specific than any answer that could possibly be correct. But (laughs) I have a degree in English, and uh, I grew up in Iowa, where in the 90s, at least, the schools were great. Um, and Mm -hmm. we all learn to write papers about books, like English papers, the exact same way. You, like, look at elements of the book, and then you evaluate the moral implications of those elements. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is, like, for the the nerds listening, this is, like, the critical approach that uh, succeeded the new criticism, an approach where you examine the role of the book in the world. And I wasn't, I wasn't reading most of those books. Um, I was mostly focusing on like learning the skills to like throw together an argument as quickly as possible. 
And I think millions of college-educated Americans of my generation, and I suspect other college-educated Anglophones, learn to do this trick. And we all kind of know how to do it. And you see that effect in advertising, in people's written work, um, and to a lesser extent, just in conversations. Can you give another example off the top of your head of that kind of moral argument that you would see, whether it's in advertising or in conversation? One that blew my mind that I cited in the piece um, was when, around the time of the Super Bowl, when Yum! Brands, the owner of the Frito-Lay brand of snack chips, had contracted with Megan The Stallion to release her new single, sort of, release a new song that could then be watched on a Dorito um, <laughs> using augmented reality software with your phone. This is like some Thomas Pynchon stuff, right? Like there's <laughs> this is like a parody of of 21st century living. But the press release that Yum Brands produced to describe it was like entirely phrased in moral terms mm. and talking about their commitment to bringing new voices into the conversation and like it's hilarious, uh, but it's also very cynical in like a terrifying way. And this is. Yeah. This has always been a problem with morality, right? Bad money drives out good because if you're a if you're a scumbag, like a great way to do it is to constantly talk about how important it is to do right. Are there other ways that companies are? I mean, there are. Let me reframe this. What are all of the ways that companies are <laughs> are profiting from our obsession with looking like we're doing good? <laughs> well, ahem. <laughs> um, so I think the the tech industry is a great example. The making the world a better place cliche was has been made the object of fun by plenty of people before me, uh, most notably Silicon Valley, the HBO show, which is mm -hmm. delightful. I'm not associated mm -hmm. with it. But I think that uh, the language of like disruption, for example, is a an instance of this where Uber was basically, is basically an elaborate scheme to get around various regulations on taxi and livery companies. Yeah. But if you frame that as disruption or a vague sense of like taking down established power structures, it becomes much more appealing than just like we've recognized an arbitrage opportunity between regulated and unregulated transport services. Right. You know, Dan, you say that the effect of all of this is that we feel helpless, right? Like, everything being framed in terms of what's morally good or bad, whether it's morally good or bad, is confusing. And then nothing we can do is right. Like, yeah, if you buy the apricot bar, you might be participating in an industry that exploits migrant workers. And if you take your time, then you might be pissing off somebody behind you. And, you know, there's, there's no way to totally do good all the time. And so, like, what do we do? Do we just accept that sometimes we'll do bad and be less afraid to be called out for it? I think the first part of that advice is is spot on. Like, you got to accept that you're going to be doing bad stuff all the time. Um, yeah. And, like, I was raised uh, in the Christian church and, like, not even a mean one, like a very liberal Christian church. Mm -hmm. But definitely when I was a kid, like, my concept of how to be good was just, like, avoid doing stuff that's bad. Right. Um, and I think that's a mistake. I think that... Our consciences and our moral systems and our ethics are very valuable insofar as they encourage us to action. And insofar as they discourage us from action, they're they're not good. Because mm -hmm. like if you want the world to come to a bad end and you want people to suffer, hold absolutely still and don't interfere in anything. 
and the the suffering will take care of itself. Mm. And I think like if you want to start making sandwiches at home and then giving them out to homeless people, you're doing more good than you than you are by like lecturing people on Twitter or boycotting Nike or whatever. Mm-hmm. But you can also be like, okay, am I making the sandwiches with Wonder Bread? Because that's not a union shop. So now I'm complicit in something bad. Right. And if you're if you have like a a negative system of morality, a sin-focused system of morality, it is going to discourage you from doing things that are probably going to be net pluses. Yeah. Dan, my last question is very simple, but it's actually hard to answer. I find it hard to answer, which is just like, why should we be good? You know, like, why should we think about the morality of our actions individually at all? That's a that's a great question and one that's totally vexing. (laughs) I think part of the issue and part of the reason we've come to approach morality in this way is that a lot of traditional levers for making big changes in the world are not available to us in the ways that we were led to believe they would be. Mm. And speaking as a man with a 14-year-old son, the question of like, why should he be good is pretty difficult to answer in terms that an adolescent boy can understand. And like, if I were telling a grad student the same thing, I would have things at my disposal, like texts and elaborate arguments. But the basic question of like, why is it better to be good? Why is it better to serve others instead of just relentlessly serving yourself is something that a lot of people are rightly having a very difficult time answering right now. So how do you explain it to your son? Well, first I tried recourse to abstruse philosophy and that didn't work at all. I was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, so there's a basic group of philosophers. And like at that moment, he like turned off. Right. The way I first framed it to him was like, I'm good because I got to sleep at night. Um, and he is, I adopted him. And part of what came into that decision was like, I loved his mom. He was a big part of my life and I was a big part of his. And I could either vanish from his life or I could be his dad. And in that context, like, the decision was very clear, not just because of, like, existing moral systems, but also because I got to sleep at night. Like, I got to feel good about myself. Mm -hmm. And the way I came down in explaining this to him was, like, money is not satisfying. Making out with attractive people is not satisfying. All that stuff is, like, great at first, and then you keep doing it, and it burns out. But feeling like you are exerting your own will to, like, do the stuff that you think is important never burns out. That is satisfying Mm. forever for me. For him, he would like a Bugatti. That's his main life goal. (laughs) But he'll grow up. He'll, He'll change his mind. Dan, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Lila. I had fun. This was great. We think of China today as a digital superpower. The country's internet users now make up almost a billion people. Weibo, which is sort of China's Twitter, has almost double the number of users on Twitter. So China is at the center of the virtual world. But it wasn't always this way. And there's a specific reason why China once lagged in technology and then sped ahead. It all goes back to its language. Well, the Chinese 
Language system, as everyone knows, is very difficult. It's notoriously yeah. difficult to learn. It's horribly complicated.、Um, there's not like 26 letters to learn, and then you can compose any character out of that. But rather, there there are tens of thousands of characters, right? Some、mm. people say eighty、um, thousand. Even though about three to four thousand is what you would use for basic literacy. And so a lot of that has to do with then how did China have to then accommodate and assimilate itself into a technological structure that was dominated、mm. by the Western alphabet? That's Jing Su. She's a professor at Yale University, where she specializes in modern Chinese literature and culture. Jing recently wrote a book called Kingdom of Characters. It's about the evolution of the Chinese language. I've put it in the show notes. Jing told me that for centuries, people living in different parts of China had totally different ways of writing down their speech. Very little was standardized, and that made it difficult to communicate across the country, let alone to the outside world. You had to look into an inventory of eighty thousand plus characters, look at them one by one, and figure out how can we reduce this to a manageable set of characters that is modern. Right, that is efficient, and that actually we can use to then start to think of underlying laws and principles that can make them manipulable as a set of symbols and characters, which is really kind of critical to thinking about turning into a form that's digitizable, codable, untransmissible that you can storage, retrieve, and look up. Jing has become a sort of translator of all things Chinese for American audiences. She covered the Olympics this February for NBC. She often speaks to Silicon Valley, so we invited her on to talk about how China's push to standardize language over 60 years ago influenced its digital power today. Could you give an example of why Chinese is such a complex language? Like, is there sort of a a word or a, a character that Helps visualize that for people. Well, there is. If you don't know Chinese, it may be hard to visualize. So let me try、yes. this. If you think about it, characters are made of strokes, right? And、mm. actually, we don't think of a alphabet a letter that way. But in fact, if we look at a capital letter A, so we know that A is composed of two diagonal longer lines and a horizontal bar in the middle.、Mm-hmm. So that's only three strokes per character、uh, for alphabet. For Chinese characters, it could range、uh, from one stroke to sixty-four, and some people、wow. actually will even name eighties, maybe even over a hundred, even though that's <laughs> a bit of a stretch. And so, <laughs> characters are difficult that way, and also they don't come in successive order the way we think of the, the alphabet, right? You know, think of the word cat. It's C A T. It's one letter after the next, and alphabet also comes with this kind of self-organizing capacity. Where B comes after A, S before T, so on and so forth. What Jing is saying is that an alphabet is set. An A will always look and sound like a variation on an A, and it will always spell something alongside the letters around it. But in Chinese, a character is almost three-dimensional. For example, there's a triangular character with one horizontal line that means big. But if you add one more line above it, the word sounds completely different, and it means sky. So there's a lot of moving parts when it comes to Chinese character. That's just a written part, because、mm. of course when it comes to spoken part, there's also tones that we know about, right? In standard Mandarin or Putonghua, there's four tones, and we don't really have those rules when we think about English. So that's how complicated Chinese is today. 
it was even more complicated before. So China needed to limit the variations. And in the late 1950s, Chairman Mao's new communist government set up a committee to do just that, standardize the language. I think standardization is everything. And you might not know this, but everything from the toothpaste you use to the wine glass you drink out of, there's a body that actually regulates the curvature of your wine glass and the level of sweetness in your toothpaste. Mm. If something is not standardized, it is not exchangeable, right? Mm. You cannot communicate and use it in a global context. And all this really has to do with, you know, you can't, if everyone had their own way of encoding or their own way of writing their own language, it would be the Tao Babel all over again. Okay, so China standardized its language for everyday use. But then it needed to simplify its character system for modern technology. They made it work for the telegraph. Then they made it work for the typewriter. I mean, how would you even build a Chinese typewriter? So none of these yeah. technologies were designed for essentially non-alphabetic, non-Western alphabetic languages. But China did it. It built a typewriter for all those characters. Well, actually, it built several standard layouts for typewriters. Today's computers also have several standard keyboards. Then, in the 1970s and 80s, it figured out a way to encode Chinese characters into computer languages. It's a long story, but they finally figured it out with the help of American grad students at MIT. And the interesting thing is, unifying the Chinese language also affected Chinese cultural identity. Because if you think about how attached we are to language, right? We were each language users. We think of ourselves as having a mother tongue. Our thought process would be completely chaotic if we couldn't put it down in language. And that's why linguists like Walter Ung, you know, would argue that writing was the very first technology, right? It's the foundation on which civilization is built. And you can imagine that gives it all kinds of cultural connotations that identify who we are. I mean, you know, one of the reasons that I would identify myself as Chinese is because Chinese was my first language, and that's the language I use. Jing, by the way, was born in Taiwan, which has long had a contentious relationship with mainland China. She moved to the United States with her family when she was nine. And it may sound like a stretch, but language and standardization have played a part in the darker side of China's history, too. The part that annexes territories and forces unity. Jing, I've heard you mention this idea of a Chinese digital nation— Can you explain what that is and what the Chinese digital nation looks like? Well, the Chinese digital nation is, to me, is really about China's way of using technology, computing technology, to essentially govern itself. Mm. Now, this is actually quite an an important uh, concept, I think. I mean, it used to be, for instance, before standardization, there were characters of people's names that you can't put in computers. because they were not standardized. And so, you know, without doing that, you can't really have a complete census of every one of your citizens. They will not be registered. They cannot have bank accounts. On the other hand, on the more negative and darker side, they also cannot be tracked, Mm -hmm. right? So there are very different ways in which cyber governance in China is, is solely dependent on this history that I talk about where it really opened the door to all doors is to get Chinese into the computer to make Chinese information processing possible in the modern world. So language is key to surveillance. It's also a way of keeping China in a kind of bubble. China, of course, has some of the most advanced technology in the world to block out parts of the internet. It's known as the Great Firewall of China. 
And the way it's been able to become so sophisticated is that Chinese internet infrastructure is made by Chinese companies, which are able to bake restrictions into its very core. And language is part of how that happened, too. The edge that China had over information processing was simply the Chinese language itself. Mm. Because Western computing companies was trying to break into the Chinese market um, with its 1 billion users. But if you cannot somehow make your computers usable in a Chinese language, you're not going to be able to you know, win over your Chinese customers. Yeah. Jing, I've noticed that if I Google something in English, that other languages will come up often, but a Chinese result is very unlikely to come up. And um, that feels kind of strange because the Chinese internet is one of the biggest in the world, but we can't see into it. And um, I guess I wonder if that's by design. Well, the interesting thing is it has everything to do mm. with the language question, right? Because what you described and why China re remains impenetrable to us, it's like you have no access to information mm -hmm. inside China, right? That's hard for you to see. And even if you could read Chinese, it would take a real insider to decipher those messages. And of course, China is also highly controlled. So information and even netizens' responses are measured, right? We certainly know that certainly in recent months, if not the past two years, we, we are concerned about China going dark. That there's a way in which China, that, I mean, there, there's a sense that um, China has the ability and can kind of close itself off to the world. We don't really have that many journalists there reporting. Um, a lot of uh, articles you see um, get taken down. So there is a real concern that we don't have access to the information sphere in China. Jing says there are two things we should pay attention to right now regarding the internet in China. One is that there's an unexpected silver lining, which is that Chinese citizens have figured out ways to shift the way they communicate to get around the censors. In effect, they're sort of adapting their language further to undo the standardized form. One way they're doing this is by using homophones. You know what a homophone is, right? Like C spelled S-E-E -E versus C spelled S-E-A. Chinese is full of them. I talk about how, you know, homophones, where a lot of Chinese characters sound alike, and that was actually kind of a stumbling block when you convert Chinese into romanization, because a lot of characteristics of Chinese are lost in that process. But mm. that also created this, this unexpected room of puns and dissent and going around censorship on the internet that's become quite creative in recent decades. Mm. And one very well-known example is the use of grass mud horse. Now, grass mud horse, when you say in Chinese, is actually homophonous with, um, how should one say? It's, it's a rather crass phrase that does some, that <laughs> doing something <laughs> towards someone else's mother. <laughs> oh, got it. Okay. The other thing to look out for is that China is getting ahead on intuitive language technology. So the same things that make Chinese so hard to encode make it extremely good for things like voice-to-text AI or writing words or characters directly onto a screen. They're totally outpacing Western companies here. It's doing really well. I think because, besides because Chinese did not let go of its own script, it basically had to learn 
sort of twice the amount, right? It sort of both had to learn how to catch up mm-hmm. and com- connect its own language to the existing alphabet, you know, Western technological infrastructure. Jing, um, part of me wants to quit my job and enroll in your courses. Thank you so much for being on the show. <laughs> this, is, this is really fascinating. You're most welcome. We certainly cover a lot of grounds and, and you can come to my class anytime. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. If you want to hear more about China and technology, you should check out our podcast, Tectonic. Season three is available to listen to now. Just search Tectonic, that's T-E-C-H tonic, wherever you get your podcasts. Please keep in touch. I would love to hear your thoughts on the show. And specifically, I'd love to hear about artists or musicians or anybody you found really particularly interesting right now. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. I share a lot of behind-the-scenes podcast stuff on Instagram. You can find the links to everything mentioned today in the show notes. I also have a link there for the best offers available on a subscription to the FT. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekendpodcast. Make sure to use that link. And finally, don't forget, if you want to attend the very first U.S. FT Weekend Festival, whether that's virtually or in person, it's on Saturday, May 7th at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. The link is in the show notes. For a limited time, we have an offer for you for half off your ticket. And I really hope to meet you there. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my exceptional team. Katya Kumkova is our senior producer, Lulu Smith is our assistant producer, and Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. This week's sound design and mixing is by Tommy Bazarian. Zoe Sullivan is our contributing producer with special help this week from Josh Gabbert-Doyen. Topher Forges is our executive producer. Thanks this week to Zoe Hahn, and thanks as always to Cheryl Brumley and Renee Kaplan. Please take care, and we will find each other again next week. As the world changes, so does the tech we need to secure what is important to us. And if you own crypto assets, you need a safe place to store your funds. At Ledger, we provide a secure and straightforward way to buy, exchange and grow your crypto. Whether you're an expert trader or just starting on your crypto journey, Ledger has everything you need all in one place. Ledger, the place to buy and grow your crypto securely. Reclaim power over your money. Learn more at ledger.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. 
In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.